0: Will you please turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 6, Ecclesiastes 6, you'll need a Bible as we go through today's message. So these brothers have some, they're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, get their attention and they'll get you a Bible that's marked at Ecclesiastes 6 and that Bible is yours for the keeping. We want everyone to have a copy of God's Word. And let me say a thank you to our musicians uh, for uh, doing a great job for us in the absence of several members of our instrumentalists, including our leader, uh, Anthony, who was out of town. I told you last week that it happened that several of them were going to be gone on the same day. but you guys did a great job leading us in musical praise. Thank you. We're very blessed to have someone like Paul who can move from the mandolin over to the guitar and then lead us that way. So thank you. Thank you all. Ecclesiastes 6, and I encourage you to take out the outline that's in your program as well. We'll be referring to that as we go through today's message. Resuming our study of the book of Ecclesiastes, having had a two-week break, simply because the themes in Ecclesiastes can be quite dark and morose. So I decided a couple of weeks ago that we would have an excursus in the book of Romans, and in particular Romans chapter 8, which is about the love of God for his people, and thereby to offer some relief from what can seem like a relentless onslaught of negativity. But in fact, those themes in Ecclesiastes are designed to show us That life is only dark and negative if it is viewed from the perspective of under the sun. That's a phrase that's used over and over in the book and will be again in the passage in chapter 6 that we'll consider today. So it is not ultimately a book of despair, but rather a book of warning, telling us that the limited earthly time-bound perspective of under the sun is without purpose. But that, in fact, there is another perspective from above the sun. And that is God's perspective. And that indeed imbues our lives not only with meaning now, but for eternity. And so this series in Ecclesiastes is titled, How to Find Meaning in a Meaningless World. And to this point, I could summarize what we have learned this way. Beware of equating WHAT IS TRUE WITH WHAT APPEARS. BEWARE OF EQUATING WHAT IS TRUE WITH THE WAY THINGS APPEAR. THAT IS WE ALL HAVE THE TENDENCY TO JUDGE BY APPEARANCES RATHER THAN BY WHAT IS TRUE. NOW WE HAVE THIS PHRASE THAT SAYS SEEING IS BELIEVING. BUT THE TRUTH IS SEEING CAN BE DECEIVING appearances in a fallen world are deceptive the way it looks is not always the way it is and this is why the Bible tells us to live by faith and not by sight I've told you many times over the years that the word translated faith the Greek word translated faith in your New Testament is the same word for belief Live by what you believe rather than by what you see. And to live by what we believe rather than what we see means I am not going to be led astray. You are not going to be led astray by the way things appear. After all, it looks like we are on the losing end, doesn't it? It looks that way. But the truth is that Christ has won the victory. It looks like sin is more fun. But the truth is joy is only found in Christ. It looks like those outside of Christ have it easier than Christians. But the truth is, according to God's word, they are living with a deep hole in their souls. It looks like, and we feel like because it looks like, God has abandoned me in all the difficulties that I'm experiencing. But the truth is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And as we saw the last two weeks, no one and no thing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It may look like I won't make it. But the truth is, he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. You see, friends, our problem is we live based on what it looks like rather than the way it truly is. And where do I get that truth? Where do I get that other perspective? Where do I get that above-the-sun perspective? I get that only from God's Word. But if we confine our view to what's under the sun, the way it looks rather than the way God says it is, we will indeed be down. Depressed, joyless we will be longing for a better situation when in fact as a child of God you have more than anyone outside of Christ could ever imagine so friends failing to see and to love and to appreciate all of that then in turn places us on a quest to find fulfillment in what we can see So we chase the dream by chasing the stuff. And once the stuff is acquired, it loses its appeal, so you have to chase some more. Now somewhere along the line, in God's good grace in my life, I learned that at a young age. And it's not because I'm a good guy, because the Bible teaches none of us are good guys and gals. And any good that we do is only because of what God has done in us. And so I preface this with that somehow in God's grace I learned that at a young age and I remember after finishing college uh, and getting a degree in computer science and then starting to interview for jobs in the computer world that I went to some of these places to interview and there was the corporate world before you and they presented it as in in ways that went through my mind like Jesus being tempted Just give me your life, and I'll give you all of these things. And something inside of me said, I can't do that. I'm not going to give my work my life, because it's not my life. And I'm not going to be drawn by these things. I remember one interview in particular at the Renaissance Center, way high atop the Renaissance Center at a beautiful suite, and as I went in there to interview with three people it had all the accoutrements and all the allurements that you would want if you look at life from under the sun. And again, something inside me said no. I ended up instead taking my first job at a family-owned business, a large business, but a family-owned business so that I could stay away from the allurements that were surely to follow. Now, we all have to work for a living. We all have to live in this fallen world. So you may not have that choice. But be sure, friends, that all of those entrapments are just that. They are entrapments. And all that pops and dazzles and all that glitters, in fact, is not gold, as they say. So you see, friends, it's not about what you can see. It's about the God that you cannot see who is more real than today's sunrise your life is about the God who is immortal invisible as Larry read, Pastor Larry read earlier immortal invisible God only wise but is more real than today's sunrise it begins with God and it's all about God and that's why the Bible starts that way in the beginning God there's a saying in philosophy that after Plato all philosophy is footnotes that is Plato said pretty much everything that needs to be said and everybody else is just commentating on what he said we know related to that after creation all of life is footnotes after creation and us as the creatures made in the image of God everything is now just footnotes it's just commentary on God and our relationship to Him, it is all about and centered on God. We're going to be reminded of that though, Today in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 6. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, we thank you again for gathering us and now quieting us in your presence before your word. Speak to us through it. May we make application of it to bring glory to you For it is that for which you made us and for which we live. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now I say in that outline that I ask you to take out a bit ago. If you don't have that out as yet, then please take a look at that. And I say first of all, from Ecclesiastes 6, we see that money cannot buy joy. Money cannot buy joy. Verse 1, I have seen another evil under the sun and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing that their hearts desire. Now, in some ways, those words that are used in verse 2, giving some people wealth, possessions, and honor, are, I think, autobiographical from the life of Solomon who wrote Ecclesiastes. Because, of course, if you remember the story of his life, he had all of those. And now he is writing Ecclesiastes toward the end of his life and he is looking back and he is sharing with us the lessons that he has learned through a life with all of those things. You remember that God said to Solomon, ask what you will of me and I will give it to you. Solomon asked for wisdom amazingly. The Lord said, since you have done this and you've asked for wisdom, not only will I give you wisdom, but he said this, I will give you wealth wealth possessions, and honor, such as no king who was before you ever had and none after you will have. Those are the same words that Solomon uses in chapter 6 and verse 2, wealth, possessions, and honor. He, Solomon, had those. He knows whereof he speaks then. But God, at the end of verse 2, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them. So God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing their heart's desire, but... He does not always give them the ability to enjoy those. One preacher said it this way, the circumstances of life rob people of the happiness that is promised by wealth. Solomon is telling us here that just as God gives wealth, he too is the one who makes it impossible for wealth to bring meaning and satisfaction. God has determined that there can be no satisfaction in this life apart from him. Augustine's words are true. Our hearts are restless, O oh God, till they find their rest in Thee. Another author has taken that truth and he's amplified it this way God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And God is continually working, hear this, friends, to divert our gaze away from this creation. And He does that by tarnishing the glitter of our gold, He does it by withering the blush of alluring beauty. He does so by driving away pleasure with the searing stab of pain. And this is what it takes to lift our eyes from what this world offers with its empty promises of happiness to fix our gaze on Him who is the source of true joy. God uses, God uses financial loss, broken health, and disrupted relationships. These are not, these are not as it appears, as it appears, as the way it looks. These are not just bad luck. They are rather tools in the hands of the Almighty. Now in chapter 5 that we saw three weeks ago, before we took our two-week break, the end of chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, it says this, When God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their life and be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. They, those blessed people, then seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. And so God does sometimes give the ability to enjoy that, but it's only to those people to whom he has graciously given an above-the-sun perspective. So the Bible does not condemn wealth. The Bible does condemn seeing wealth as an end in itself. And instead of that, back in chapter 6 then, God does not always grant the ability to enjoy these wealth and and possessions. And then the end of verse 2 says, And strangers enjoy them instead. So what does that mean? Consider the story of Stanley Smith. He was a multimillionaire who made his fortune selling iron ore to the Japanese after World War II. Before his death in 1968, he made careful arrangements surrounding his wealth. He had $100 million placed into a trust to ensure the well-being of his wife. A team of three trustees were assigned to manage the trust. But when those trustees died or they stepped down, those appointed to succeed them did not always have the foundations and at heart. In fact, one of those who became a trustee was a relatively young 44-year-old who was quite greedy. He convinced the other trustees to purchase items that were ostensibly for the enrichment of the trust, but which were, in fact, purchases for his enjoyment. He spent $52 million in six months. $52 million from the May Smith Trust. Money intended to support an elderly widow who was now in a nursing home And then that money was intended to go to charity after she died. His blizzard of spending included purchasing an air charter company, despite the fact that he had no background in aviation, Gulfstream executive jets, a World War II military aircraft, Czech fighter planes, helicopters, rocket launchers, a patrol boat, and a yacht. He paid off more than $600,000 in personal debt. He bought a $700,000 home. Now that's an extreme example, so consider something more common regarding this truth at the end of verse 2, that these riches are often left to strangers to enjoy. People you never met are left to enjoy them. Here's a more common example. A man accumulates a retirement fund so that he and his wife can live out the so-called golden years comfortably, enjoying a leisurely life along with the pleasures this world has to offer then a few years in, the wife is diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, and now all of their money will go to strangers, to hospitals, to doctors, to nursing home owners, who will now feast on the benefit of his wealth. And friends, that scenario is played out over and over again every day. In the years ahead, a similar scene will be played out in the lives of some who are here. Did you know that 70% of people who are in nursing homes are on Medicaid? Do you know why? It's not that they all entered the nursing home on Medicaid. Many of them entered the nursing home with savings. But that savings is gone very quickly at $5,000 or $8,000 a month for nursing home care. And so within a few years, even someone who has saved precipitously finds it gone and vanishing, and now they're eligible for Medicaid. Now, I don't say this to scare you. I say it to do what God is doing. God is advising you. God is telling us not to place our trust in wealth, not to place your trust in the stuff you can see and the wealth that can purchase the stuff you can see. Because verse 1 of chapter 6 says, this weighs heavily on mankind, meaning... It's a common occurrence. It happens all the time. On Friday night, my daughter Annie and I attended a dinner so that she and four other recipients of a private scholarship at her college could meet the generous donors who made it possible. Those donors were a delightful, older, wealthy couple who have donated a substantial portion of their wealth to help students. At one point during the evening, I was talking to the woman, and she mentioned the economic crash of 08 just nine years ago. And she mentioned how much it scared her and her wealthy friends. And she commented, quote, It can all be gone tomorrow. And she's absolutely right. So do not put your hope in those things that are temporal, And the money that can buy those things that are temporary and can be gone tomorrow. The psalmist said this, In vain people rush about heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will finally be. This is meaningless, says Solomon in chapter 6, a grievous evil. So money cannot buy joy. And secondly, in your outline, money cannot avoid futility. Money cannot avoid futility. Verse 3, A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive a proper burial, then we'll go on from there. Now, here are two blessings listed. First, the man may have a hundred children. And secondly, the man may have a long life. Now, there are some of you here are thinking to yourself that a long life would be the last thing you'd want if you had a hundred children. But understand that in the Jewish mindset, they identified many children in many years as the greatest signs of tremendous blessing. Psalm 127 says, children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. They are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. So here Solomon is describing in chapter 6 and verse 3, a man who is blessed beyond measure. The next part of the verse identifies two afflictions that rob this man of the prospects of that blessing. First, he's incapable of enjoying what he has. We've just discussed some of the ways that the joy of wealth is robbed from us, but notice this next statement. Not only is he incapable of enjoying what he has, but he does not receive a proper burial. Here's a man who outwardly seems rich, but truly he's poor. Though he has a large family, he's not lamented when he dies. There's no mourning, no honor, no eulogy. He's not given a proper burial. Why? Because he's invested, but he hasn't invested in what really matters. And what matters is what money cannot buy. So we've got to ask ourselves, friends, the question that is the title of today's sermon. It's at the top of your outline. Who switched the price tags? You see, we look at the price tags of the stuff of the world, and we assign value to things that ultimately have no value. And we devalue those things that have lasting value. So when this man dies, because he bought the price tags that had been switched, there's no sense of loss loss and grief. His friends and relatives stayed near him while he lived because he had wealth. They used him for what they could get. And then when he died, the survivors could hardly wait for the reading of the will. And every day this is played out in our country. The blessings of wealth are swallowed up by the emptiness of affliction. We're afflicted by our circumstances, by our relationships, and no amount of wealth can fill the emptiness. And even if a man dies and receives a proper burial because his material wealth has remained intact and perhaps he did foster relationships, and in fact we can protect our wealth today in ways that they couldn't back then, even if all that's true, the wealthy person still ends in weakness and decay that cannot be avoided. There's a heartbreaking story told of John D. Rockefeller. Toward the end of his life, Rockefeller had an income of a million dollars a week. Yet his doctors allowed him at the end of his life to eat only the bare minimum, now less than a hundred pounds in weight, He sampled everything at breakfast, a drop of coffee, a spoonful of cereal, a forkful of egg, and a bit of chop the size of a pea. That's what he was reduced to. And the point of the story is that there's no guarantee that we'll be able to enjoy what we have. It could be death that robs us, or more often, it's the continual drive for more and the inability to be satisfied that robs us. And either way, the ability to enjoy what we have is not inherent to us. Pastor Douglas Wilson said this, Man cannot be thought of as an artesian well. Nothing inherent in him enables him to enjoy his creature comforts. He has no innate capacity to enjoy. We're given the privilege of experiencing joy here in the midst of ongoing disobedient and imbecilic chaos, he says. But we're given that only by God. And so because all of that's true, The middle of verse 3 says this, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning. It departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. This verse is saying the equivalent of this. If this is all there is, it would would have been better to have never been born. And in fact, similar words have fallen from a number of scripture writers. Words like that fell from the lips of Job in Job chapter 3. He asked, Why was I not hidden away in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day in the midst of all of his afflictions, looking at that point in Job's life under the sun? You see, the stillborn child accomplishes nothing in life, never sees the light of day, never hears anything, never knows anything. By Jewish tradition, the stillborn were never named. And you see, that's because a name always represented character that either had been established or character that was hoped for. The stillborn child had never had opportunity to establish character. And when a child then was born dead, all calls for hope on the development of that character was destroyed. So the Jews never named the stillborn. That's why it says here in verse 3, in darkness its name is shrouded. This brief existence is totally empty, without meaning. And that's the point of the comparison. Solomon says the existence of the frustrated wealthy is as meaningless as the life of a stillborn child. He goes on to point out the advantage, though, of the stillborn. That those miscarried at birth have the advantage over those who live a miscarried life. He says in verse 5, Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place? That rhetorical question, do they not all go to the same place? That same place is the grave, and of course the answer is yes. The difference between the stillborn and the wealthy is that the stillborn get there faster and without all the hassles. The child who died in infancy got the rest without the work, the peace of mind without the worries, the satisfaction without the disappointments. And Solomon is reminding us that death will ultimately come to all, and when it does, there's nothing that we've gained in this life that will matter and that will come with us. With that perspective in mind, He calls us, again in this book, to enjoy life deeply, but not in order to gain ultimate satisfaction. It's only when we can see life through this perspective that we're able to enjoy it for what it is because we then recognize what it can never be. Hear this. Only in the light of our death can we truly experience life. Money cannot buy joy. It also cannot avoid futility. And third, money cannot yield profit. Money cannot yield profit. Now, of course, I'm not talking about profit in terms of more money. It can do that. I'm talking about ultimate profit. I say in your outline, it cannot bring three things. It cannot bring, first of all, true gratification. True gratification. Verse 7. Everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. So maybe we think, maybe I can avoid disappointment by just wanting less out of life. But the trouble is that we'll always have an appetite for more. In verse 7, Solomon tells us what happens when we feed that appetite. We just get hungry again. The same cravings return day after day. We eat food to give us strength, to work, to earn our bread which we eat to give us strength to work again tomorrow. And so it goes day after day. And verse 7 says, the appetite is never satisfied. And the word for appetite, the Hebrew word for appetite, is nefesh. That's the word for soul. The soul is never satisfied. All our efforts are for our mouths, for the here and now that really doesn't take us anywhere. And in all of this, our souls are never satisfied. We can work to feed the body, to pamper the body, to clothe the body, to shelter the body, but the real man, the soul, is driven by an unquenchable longing for something more. Money cannot yield profit. It cannot bring true gratification. Secondly, it cannot bring ultimate gain. Verse 8, What advantage have the wise over fools? What do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? You see, it does not matter how wise we are or how much money we have. We all have unfulfilled longings. Now, it's better to be wise than to be foolish, of course. But even wise people have desires that life does not fully satisfy. Nor can a poor person, someone who is in poverty, but someone who has thought about life. That's who's being referred to, that the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves, kind of a noble poverty. Still that cannot deliver us from desire either. The poor man described in verse 8 is wise enough to know the right way to live. So maybe he can avoid all the disappointments that the rich people have when they expect their money to give them meaning and purpose in life. And yet when it comes to satisfying desire, the poor man is going to be as disappointed as anyone. Neither wisdom nor poverty proves to be an advantage. Usually we can find satisfaction in everything that life has to offer, food and drink, music and beauty, family and friends. And one author says this, and yet, hear this, desire is a tramp. Never content to stay at home, it always wants to go out wandering. wandering." And this is Solomon's vivid image in verse 9 where he talks about the roving of the appetite. Our desires are always traveling, but never arriving. That's the wanderlust of the soul. Always traveling, never arriving. Verse 9. Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Money cannot bring true gratification, cannot bring ultimate gain. And lastly, it cannot be your highest goal. A striking example of perpetual dissatisfaction comes from the excavations of the ancient city of Pompeii. When Mount Vesuvius erupted and Pompeii was buried in ash and in that volcanic eruption... Many people perished with their body shapes, their postures, and in some instances, their facial expressions preserved in that volcanic ash. It happened so quickly. One woman's feet were pointed in the direction of the city gate. She was running to get out, headed for safety. And yet her face was turned back to look at something just beyond the reach of her outstretched hands. She was grasping for something as she's leaving. Grasping for a prize, that prize was a bag of beautiful pearls. Whether suddenly she remembered that she had left the pearls behind or else she saw that someone else had dropped them as she was running for her life, the woman was frozen in a pose of unattainable desire. That's a temptation for all of us to turn from life to death by reaching for something that we think will satisfy. A string of pearls, perhaps, or some other kind of jewelry. Some people reach for food and drink and some other kind of substance that they can put into their bodies. Others are allured by sexual pleasure, still others to their toys and games or some hobby. Or maybe they just spend more time watching television or playing on the computer. But whatever it is, Our wandering appetites are always reaching for something that we hope will satisfy us. And the truth is, only God can do that. Through his word, through his worship, and through the help that comes from his Holy Spirit when we turn to him in prayer. It's important to remember, friends, then, when we are down and despondent about anything in life. We need to ask ourselves what we truly need and remind ourselves what God wants to give us. Before we buy something or we eat something or turn something on, it's better for us to talk things over with our Father in heaven, saying something like, Lord, you know how empty I feel right now. Help me not to run away from my problems, but to turn them over to you. Teach me, hear this, teach me that you are enough for me. And by your grace, give me the peace and the joy that you have for me in Jesus. The Apostle Paul said, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. The word for contentment there means self-contained. Self-contained. That is, I've got everything I need. You remember the story of Jesus visiting his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus in the city of Bethany? And Mary sat at Jesus' feet, the Bible tells us, and to hear him speak. And Martha was busy and distracted with the preparations for for dinner. And she was upset at Mary because Mary's just sitting there wasting time listening to Jesus. And Jesus says to Martha, Martha, Martha. And every time I read that, I always say, when Jesus says your name twice, you're in big trouble. (laughs) Martha, Martha, you are careful and troubled about many things. One thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that. The one thing, yea, the one person that you need is God at the center of everything. And your take-home truth is this, contentment comes only from God. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank you for gathering us, and thank you for meeting with us. Thank you for your word and its realism that tells us about what we see but then tells us about what's true. Lord, help us to be people who understand that what's true is not what appears. What's true is what you tell us. Help us to be people then that walk by faith and not by sight. And may we glorify you thereby, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.